Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and we're speaking today with Anton Flores, co-founder of Alterna, a faith community comprised of Latino immigrants and U.S. citizens dedicated to acts of hospitality, justice, and mercy. He is also a grassroots organizer calling for the closure of the Stewart Detention Center, one of the largest immigration detention centers in the United States. This episode is guest hosted by Jennifer Brooks, Associate Professor of History at Auburn University. She is currently working on a history of immigration and labor in Alabama. Professor Brooks began the conversation by asking Anton Flores how he became engaged in the immigrant rights movement. Anton Flores of Alterna Community, um, why don't you start for us um, in addressing this, the questions of your activities on immigrant rights in Georgia. Just sort of tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up working for immigrant rights in Georgia and sort of, you know, what's your personal journey? Yeah, well, the catalyst for it was actually very personal. Um, my wife and I, 14 years ago, adopted our oldest son uh, from Guatemala. And to be honest, we were pretty naive at that point about many of the policies uh, and much of the history and kind of the interconnectedness between, you know, U.S. policies and, uh, and, and the current and historic issues confronting Guatemala. And so once, once our eyes began to be opened by that and as we, you know, ended up in this, you know, multi-ethnic family, we, we really felt that we had a sense of obligation and desire uh, to both keep our son uh, connected with with his cultural identity, but also ourselves uh, to be to be much better informed and and connected to uh, individuals from Guatemala. So one of the very first things that we just kind of did is that we decided that we would uh, begin to join in uh, a faith community here in in Lagrange uh, that was comprised predominantly of immigrants uh, from Mexico and and Guatemala. And it was in the context of that faith community where, um, their, where even their language began to shift a lot of our thinking as they referred to one another as brother and sister. And it just so happened that about 95% of our brothers and sisters in this congregation uh, were also without legal status in the United States that we had to begin to wrestle with um, much of you know, what was becoming a, a rather polarized issue on the national screen, we were now, you know, seeing it in very human terms, through very human eyes, uh, as we were worshiping alongside individuals that, that we were hearing these, you know, in the, with increased volume, these dehumanizing voices and policies emerging. That connected also with, with then beginning to intentionally do research around issues of ethics and international adoptions. Uh, and realizing that many of the root causes of international adoptions were, were similar with the root causes of migration. And so in, in connecting and traveling to Guatemala and meeting indigenous cooperatives and women's cooperatives, you know, just began to, to have this, this transformative relationship that, that, that just kind of coalesced. And so I was teaching social work at, uh, at a four-year uh, church-related college here, but, but increasingly, just kind of in my personal time, I found myself drawn more and more to walking alongside local immigrants who were in crisis. Their crises uh, were, were unique. There wasn't just any, any standard social service agency that could, that could address their crises, maybe because of uh, 
uh, their limited English proficiency, or because of the added complexities of, of their immigration status. And so it was about nine years ago that I just kind of took a leap of faith in, 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 all, in, all, in all forms and fashion and left my tenure track position and, and began uh, Alterna, which, is, which we can talk about, but it's, it's, it's a hybrid of both a 501c3 nonprofit organization and kind of a faith intentional community comprised of both U.S. citizens and immigrants from Latin America. Since we're already talking about Alterna, why don't you go ahead and tell us some more about what Alterna is like? Yeah. The vision. Okay. So again, it is this hybrid of both 501c3, a nonprofit entity, and I you know, make myself available full-time uh, for the quote-unquote work of, of Alterna. But rather than being kind of a standard nonprofit organization where you have an office and staff, instead what we aspire to be and to live out is, um, is kind of an alternative community. And so we have about nine families that are all in some form or fashion connected to Alterna. And we, all of us except for one household, uh, live on the same street, uh, which, which enables us to just have a lot of both planned and unplanned uh, life together. We, we are a faith community. We do identify ourselves uh, as Christian. And so much of the kind of planned life together would include, you know, sometimes for prayer and for, uh, for, for worship, uh, but, but also meals and even just some uh, cooperative housing. One of, our, one of our strongest offerings here is we have four families uh, from, from Guatemala and Mexico who, who own their homes cooperatively. And so it's a way to keep housing costs uh, lower uh, as well as just kind of create uh, some, some security you know, for these families while we await um, you know, some type of just comprehensive immigration uh, reform. So that's kind of our, our life that gets woven together. And then, but then again, I use my skills uh, as a social worker and as an advocate and now you know, kind of as an activist to both work with immigrants in our local community and walk alongside them when they're in crisis, but also quickly after, uh, after forming Alterna uh, was about the same time that, that immigration detention began to ramp up in the state of Georgia. And so um, quickly began to focus a lot of my attention and actually just responding to needs. But that, that became kind of a major component of how I was spending my time and doing some organizing seeking to um, both draw attention to the existence of immigration detention centers, hold accountable these mostly private for-profit facilities for the detention standards that, that, that we've been chronicling have been violated, uh, and, then, and then trying to organize both a compassionate humanitarian response through visitations and hospitality and reaching out to the extended family, but also uh, through vigils and protests uh, calling for the closure of these facilities. What would you say is sort of the demographics of the immigrant communities that you are serving mostly? I mean, I realize at Stewart there are people drawn from all over the country, but maybe starting with LaGrange and then Georgia. Well, you know, Georgia, if we start with Georgia, Georgia has sometimes been referred to as one of the new frontier states or one of the new border states. Mm -hmm. You know, definitely in the 80s, 90s, and even in the you know, early 2000s. The rate of, de of demographic changes, the rate of, of growth amongst the, especially the Hispanic Latino community, was at some, some reports were saying we're over 300 percent, you know, over, over a 20-year period of time, uh, both Georgia and North Carolina. And so we were seeing, you know, statewide huge shifts. 
Lagrange is not what I would what I would call one of the epicenters of those demographic shifts. It's just where we happen to already be located, where we were already rooted as a family. However, having said that, you know our population in Lagrange is about thirty thousand total, and I would estimate maybe about five percent of that, five to ten percent of that is currently um, Latino or Hispanic, and majority kind of first wave immigrants. Um, but but that five or ten percent, given the the relative small number. When they have a crisis, their crises tend to get magnified because of the fact that there isn't kind of a web of of support here beyond their beyond their familial and, and friendship connections. So it's definitely enough, you know, to keep me busy. And then, given just our proximity, our relative proximity to Stewart Detention Center, um, which is in rural Southwest Georgia, about three hours drive from Atlanta, but only about an hour and a half drive from from us, it just became quite obvious that, that if anyone was going to do some organizing around Stewart Detention Center, which, which um, is one of the largest immigration detention centers in the U.S., uh, that, that we would probably have to kind of be the point person, uh, you know, the point organization for that. And indeed, uh, in many ways, you know, we, we have been for, for, for much of the last, since its inception in, in, in 2006. Maybe let's explore a little bit for, uh, especially for listeners who might be a little less familiar with this uh, landscape right now. But what, what would you say are some of the most important challenges that you have, uh, you know, seen as you've worked with these immigrant communities? You know, maybe sort of what's what's most important that's facing them right now. Hmm. Well, obviously, I mean, it depends. So there's so many different facets. The longer that we are kind of at an impasse as a nation around our immigration policies. Um, what we're seeing is more and more families getting rooted. As a matter of fact, after, after I speak with you, I will be having a, a meeting with, with two young women who have just recently arrived to our town after being raised in Guatemala. The only thing is, is that they were both born in the United States. So here are two U.S. citizen women who know nothing of our country. You know, their, their culturation into, our, into the American culture, um, you know, was truncated by, by an early you know, migration to Guatemala, but here they are coming, the, the children of undocumented immigrants who are now adults, and they're asking me to help them with something as simple as obtaining a driver's license. So the longer that we're at an impasse around what we're going to do with their immigration policies, the more entrenched we're having, you know, families in our communities. And so anytime, especially when we go, when, we, when the pendulum swings towards a real strong enforcement uh, kind of posture, uh, what we're finding is is that it has significant, significant, very human uh, impacts uh, on on families, on women, and I would say on children as well. I don't know the circumstances of these women, but I have also been seeing, you know, U.S. citizen children who are what I would call kind of a de facto deportation, uh, as one or both of their parents have been deported, and then they they uh, they join their families in their in their parents' country of origin. So so that's that's a huge issue. Um, in Georgia, Georgia, I would say, has been, has been one of the states that has been really taking some of the harshest anti-immigrant postures. So we have, you know, we have laws that, that, that criminalize immigrants uh, in, in many different fronts. The, to me, the most blatant is on just the freedom of mobility, where we have felonized uh, driving without a license. Uh, so an, an immigrant or any individual... Uh, but but it was it was designed uh, as a way to target uh, undocumented immigrants. An individual who has a fourth conviction of driving without a license 
in a five-year period of time, that is considered a felony under Georgia state law. And in a town like ours that in one year alone had 194 uh, roadblocks, uh, it, it is quite easy to get uh, tripped up in, in a state that has no, you know, has no real public transportation um, but has real need for, for laborers. That's an easy uh, trap uh, to, to, for one to fall into. So those, those are issues, I mean, the, the, you know, nationwide, everyone's wondering what's going to happen with uh, Obama's executive orders and the impacts that that has on families. Um, but, you know, I think the, and, and then the other part that, that we can never underestimate, is just the emotional, the psychological, the, the impact that it takes on, on, on continuing to be kind of this, this volleyball of, of marginalization and criminalization for, you know, for, uh, again, increasing numbers of, of what are families now, and even mixed status families where a spouse may be a U.S. citizen or definitely, uh, you know, children are, are U.S. citizens. You know, there's been a lot of similarity between the situation in Alabama and Georgia in terms of mm-hmm. politics and legislation. Um, what, what's kind of the status right now in Georgia in terms of this anti-immigrant legislation? I mean, what is still on the books, obviously, we were one of the show me your papers states. So, I mean, that and that, uh, you know, passed in the state and, and was upheld in, in the US, U.S. Supreme Court. So there is still this kind of empowerment of local law enforcement to act as immigration uh, officials, which is, which is dangerous because of the fact that immigration is a civil matter of law and law enforcement are supposed to be dealing with criminal matters. And so we find that immigrant communities are, are reluctant to report their own victimization. And so when you have that kind of extra layer of authority granted to law enforcement, it only, you know, kind of creates, uh, widens that divide between, between law enforcement uh, and immigrant communities. And so, so we still have, uh, that's just one example, but there would be a, a couple of other factors that lead to this need to bridge the divide uh, between our, our immigrant community uh, and local law enforcement. Um, again, we, we, we have the criminalization of immigrants and the felonization of immigrants uh, for simply driving to work, to worship, to Walmart. So that's still going on. Um, and we have actually my state senator of my district uh, is introduced a bill, uh, Senate Bill 6. It did not pass last year, but he has already held a press conference where he intends to uh, once again introduce this bill that would even take away the driver's licenses of those individuals who have received the deferred action for childhood arrivals. So these are individuals who arrived as children, um, have clean criminal records, have completed school or obtained a GED, are doing all they can to just have their American identity affirmed. Because again, they, 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 they came here as children. There's been an executive order that grants them a two-year kind of stay uh, with a work visa, um, so it grants them what's called legal presence in the United States with a work visa, um, and um, and so they've been able to obtain driver's licenses. And yet, my state senator is going to introduce for a second time a bill that would that would uh, take those those privileges away, even from uh, these young individuals who whose migration was you know was in the arms of their parents. Well, within this uh, context of kind of thinking of moving a little further southwest uh, to Stewart Detention Center now, um, I know this is becoming or has become a a major focus of Alterna and and you personally. So why don't you describe to us sort of what your vision is about 
this project at Stewart Detention Center and maybe start out with some sort of background information. Yeah, so some of the history is interesting. When I was, when I was teaching social work, um, I participated. A friend of mine had a nonprofit advocacy group in Americus, Georgia, called the Prison and Jail Project. And I participated in what he called a freedom walk. And this was sometime, I don't know, around 2003, 2004. And during that prison, during that uh, freedom walk, he took us to a town I'd never been to before, Lumpkin, Georgia, a town of 1,300 individuals. And about a mile and a half on the outskirts of the town, he brought us to this empty for-profit uh, medium security complex prison and was and was talking about the growth of private prisons and gave this one as an example of if anyone's ever watched the old movie uh, Field of Dreams, which is about a guy who hears a voice telling him to build a baseball field out in the middle of nowhere in Iowa and saying, build it and they will come. I, I, I refer to Stuart as the prison of dreams. Because the same thing happened. They, they must, you know, CCA, Corrections Corporation of America, must have heard a voice telling them, build it and they will come. Um, and who the they were uh, didn't matter. I mean, we know demographically that they tend to be you know, poor uh, persons of color, but they had, they had no contract. And so this speculative prison sat empty for a few years. So here I was, 2003, 2004, visiting uh, this facility. We found Alterna in 2006. Unbeknownst to me, that's the same year that that, that, that once empty facility uh, begins to detain immigrants. And I didn't become aware of that until 2007, the very next year, when I'm reading um, in a Spanish language newspaper that there's a hunger strike taking place in an immigration detention center uh, in Stewart County, uh, Georgia and connect the dots, and I realized that that's the, that is the same facility. So in 2007, in a response to, I mean, the, 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 the resistance work began with those who were detained there, with their act of, of, uh, of nonviolent resistance through this hunger strike. And so we responded and joined with them in 2007 by organizing, uh, you know, a relatively small uh, vigil. About 30, 40 individuals showed up, and we you know, had speakers and we videotaped it. And the video is, is still on YouTube. And that video then began to have family members of loved ones who were detained. And in those early years, those detained were primarily individuals from uh, who were living and working in Georgia and the Carolinas and who were getting, you know, picked up predominantly for the very charge that I was talking about earlier, the, you know, driving without a license. And so their loved ones were calling and were inquiring about, you know, the process, wanting to confirm if that's where they were at, and, and, then, and then began to ask if, if a group of us could visit uh, their loved ones as either they, the, the families were either in their countries of origin calling from there, uh, couldn't afford to travel, or maybe any combination of these things, or maybe their own immigration status made them too fearful to visit their, their loved ones. So we began to, to conduct visitations. When I say we, Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights, our organization, the ACLU of Georgia hires uh, someone to, to kind of you know, spearhead a project around immigrants' rights. And together we formed a coalition called Georgia Detention Watch. And as the visitations continued, we began to hear 
kind of repeated themes of what were violations of national detention standards so in terms of issues of access to health care and food and treatment by the guards and the use of solitary confinement in the early in the early uh, years transgender detainees were were directly placed into solitary confinement and so we began to hear all of these kind of common themes emerging so we we ended up writing um, some reports where we were compiling these allegations of, of human rights violations and detention standard violations and making recommendations for what change could look like, but also, meanwhile, continuing these vigils. While all of that is happening, there, there have been um, two deaths in this facility. Uh, there, there was at least one documented case and already settled in court of a U.S. citizen wrongfully detained and deported uh, from, from this facility, and of course deported via our immigration courts. So the vigils continue to draw national attention, increasingly national attention. Uh, Stewart Detention Center uh, has since been named one of the 10 worst immigration detention facilities by Detention Watch Network, which is a DC-based uh, advocacy group. Our efforts are continue to draw greater and greater attention. So we just recently held, I believe it was our eighth vigil, and we had nearly a thousand uh, individuals, almost the same number as people that live uh, in the town of Lumpkin. Now, meanwhile, catch that 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 Lumpkin is a is a is a town of thirteen hundred, and this is a facility that, at full capacity, houses about eighteen hundred, mostly men and, and again transgendered uh, detainees. So, so there are more people inside this facility, this private for-profit facility. Uh, than there than there are in the town, and Stewart County, where it's located, uh, is one of the poorest uh, counties in the state of Georgia. There is a desperate need for economic development uh, in this in this county, and so it, it, it's pretty obvious to see why politicians would have a hard time saying no to what is now the largest employer in their county. However, the reality is, and I don't have the statistics, but the, but the reality is, is that um, very few, uh, even speaking with county commissioners, some of their disappointment is that very few of the jobs have resulted in uh, being jobs for Stewart County residents. Uh, those who do work there tend to choose to live um, in, in surrounding towns that are, that are larger and, and offer more uh, amenities. I mean, the, the town of Lumpkin has, has one restaurant, no grocery stores. And so they tend to, to commute in from 45 minutes or sometimes even longer away. But, but there is another layer to this in terms of work issues is that, again, this is a, this is a private for-profit uh, facility. And the individuals who are held there are held there um, on civil immigration charges. They're just being detained. They're not, they're not there on criminal charges. They're not there on any type of sentence. And so they're not there, quote, unquote, you know, paying a debt to society or anything like that. They're simply being held on civil immigration matters. And yet this private for-profit facility is utilizing the individuals that are detained there to do the bulk of the cooking and the cleaning uh, of their facility, including the cleaning of the immigration offices of those uh, who are in charge with their removal proceedings. Which, which has two layers of what I would kind of consider hypocrisy. One is that you have uh, a facility that is holding individuals who are allegedly 
unauthorized to live or work in the United States, and yet here they are working for a private for-profit uh, company, and their work, their eight hours of labor, um, is only being uh, remunerated at about one to four dollars for an entire day's work. And right now, as we speak in Aurora, Colorado, activists have uh, and have filed a lawsuit against another private uh, prison company for this very same practice. So we're kind of keeping an eye on that to see what that would mean. So you have that you have that level of hypocrisy that says if these individuals are not authorized to work, how is it that this that this private facility can do this? And and the answer is they do it because of the profit, you know, that they can make off of paying someone one to four dollars a day versus paying uh, someone minimum wage, much less a living wage, uh, to do this. But then the other part of that again is that these are jobs. If this was about job creation, these are jobs. Uh, that Stewart Countyans can be doing and should be doing. And immigrants shouldn't be feeling coerced or compelled to do this because it's their only way of feeling productive. I mean, many times when I talk with an immigrant who's detained there and I'm like, why do you, why do you work for $1 a day? And they're like, well, we only get one hour of recreation time. So what else am I going to do? I've been someone who's been working 60 hours a week in a factory, uh, on a farm, uh, what have you. I need something to feel productive. I need something to feel like a human being. Or they're there and they've, they've lost their wages and even those $1 to $4 a day is what can supplement their, their low-calorie diets. I mean, uh, so many of the men that we visit, uh, the, the common, one of the common themes that we can talk about with them is how much weight have you lost since you've been in this facility? And so those few dollars are dollars that they can give right back to, to the corporation by buying supplemental food through through the commissary, or to buy phone cards via another private company at exorbitant rates uh, to communicate with their with their loved ones. Is there a pattern to what happens to that you've been able to you know discern to some of the detainees when they leave Stewart Detention Center? I mean, are they deported directly to their home countries away from Stewart, or do they go to a different facility, or are they released? Yeah, it's a high turnover, right? I think I remember you saying maybe a month, two months, three months, or something like that. Yeah, and these are shifting. I think I said um, that that in the early years we saw that these individuals were coming primarily from the Carolinas uh, and from Georgia. Right. Um, now I would say that actually what we are seeing is a, an increasing number of individuals who are actually being apprehended at the border, um, at the U.S.-Mexico border, and these are asylum seekers. And we are detaining uh, asylum seekers far away from the border. We're shipping them to, to rural, remote Georgia. Another thing, another factor to consider is that because it's a civil matter, there is no such thing as due process. So these individuals that are being held at Stewart Detention Center for an average, last, last report I saw was it was an average of 53 days um, that they're held there. Now, someone who's fighting their deportation, I mean, we have, we have known individuals uh, who have been detained there for over a year, over two years. But those who are fighting have no due process rights. There, there's no such thing as public defenders in immigration court. And so, so these asylum seekers, or anyone being detained at Stewart Detention Center or any immigration detention center in the United States, has no right to legal counsel. Um, and so according to the Detention Watch Network, about 85% of immigrants who are held in detention facilities never get uh, any legal counsel 
uh, whatsoever. So, so they're picked up um, in their homes, or in this case, or or, or increasingly at Stewart, um, being being apprehended at the border, and they're brought to this facility. They're shackled at five points: their wrists, their ankles, their waist. But may have come from one or two or even three other facilities before arriving. And it used to be that Stuart was like the last place. It used to be that I would be able to tell the individuals that we visit this should be their last detention facility, that they're either going to be you know, deported from here or released from here. But we're, but we're hearing more and more individuals now still being transferred from, uh, from Stuart here in Georgia to Otero, which is in New Mexico. So not certain like what are causing these shifts. I should say that, that according to Syracuse University and, um, and, and the clearinghouse that they have there, the immigration court in Stewart Detention Center has the highest uh, deportation rate. Um, we're talking over uh, 93% of those who are held at Stewart or, and or who go through Stewart's immigration court uh, will find themselves with a deportation order. And that's the highest of any court, in, of any immigration court uh, in the nation. So, so Stewart, I think, is a very, is a, is a place where one could quite easily feel despondent as, as you have, you're, you're cut off from family, you have no access, uh, no real access to legal counsel, and you have a court that you know uh, has the highest deportation uh, rate of any in the, in the nation. One other you know, way that we've responded, I was talking about how we started with the vigils and that led to visitations and reports. But one other, one other layer that, that we have added to this is that four and a half years ago, we established a house. It's on the same street as the detention center, just one mile down uh, from there. And it's called El Refugio, which is Spanish meaning the refuge. And for four and a half years, it's been a beautiful um, response. We call, it, you know, we call it a hospitality house. And so out of this house now, this house really is now the hub. And it's a separate 501c3 that Alterna you know, helped uh, incubate. Um, but it is, a, it is a separate nonprofit uh, organization um, now. But out of this house, this house is now the hub of our visitation programs. But it also is a place where we can receive the families who do come and visit. I was, my wife and I were just there this past weekend. It's staffed entirely by volunteers every single weekend. And so we were the volunteers uh, staffing the house this weekend. And we got to meet um, a mother, a wife and, and mother and her children who had driven all the way from Phoenix, Arizona to visit uh, their father slash husband uh, at Stewart Detention Center. We had the opportunity to host a woman, a U.S. citizen woman from South Carolina who had come to visit her husband uh, in this facility, a husband from South America who had been living in this country since he was six years old. Um, we had the opportunity to host overnight in this little mustard seed color house a family from North Carolina, a mother and her three children whose husband slash father uh, is in this facility. And so the house has also become a real transformative place where we can invite university groups, church groups, human rights groups, anyone to just come and join us and have a real tangible, hands-on, humanizing experience where they can see this intersection of everything we've been talking about, the intersection of, of the privatization of prisons, of immigration detention policies, of rural poverty and, 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 and wrestle with all that in the midst of also seeing with their own eyes 
the impact of detention on those who are detained and on their family members and loved ones. So that's been another really unique uh, response uh, that, that, that we've been kind of living through for the last uh, four and a half years. And what, what's your vision now, um, Anton, about sort of this, this project that you have in mind that's aiming towards kind of two things. One is shutting down Stewart Detention Center, but also trying to do that in a way that kind of addresses some of those economic development issues for Lumpkin and for Stewart County, Georgia, you know, sort of a way that kind of builds solidarity, but it, but also shuts Stewart down. Can you maybe talk about that some? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if, if I mean, Jennifer, you might recognize this being from the South, but, you know, that region of Georgia is well known for um, for some pesty gnats um, right <laughs> right now, right now in the summertime. You, you don't want to be outside uh, in Lumpkin because, A, it's like tremendously hot, but B, you're also it's also infested with these with these real aggravating gnats. And I, I say that only because. We, we feel more like the gnats in this whole scheme of, of immigration detention policy. I mean, we, we're trying to shut down a, a, a facility that is owned and operated by a multi-billion dollar corporation that has you know, sunk its teeth into a highly impoverished community that, again, like I said, what incentive is there you know, for, what political incentive is there you know, for the county commission to end the contract. The contract is actually with the county, so they, they do have that power to do so. So we feel like a, a David against a Goliath. But So we are trying to figure out, I mean, the, the next kind of evolution of all this is to engage the county commission in, in dialogue, uh, to learn from them, to try to have them humanize what's going on inside that facility. But we've, we've got to realize, we, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe someone who's listening to this podcast can help you know, give us some ideas or, or walk alongside us with, with doing some research. But, but how can we connect um, these two labor, I mean, these two labor issues? One is that, that, that this rural, mostly African-American community, highly impoverished, uh, is in desperate need of just labor, but the same thing with these with, with these immigrants who are being held here are, are in need of a just environments, whether it be in the United States or much less back in their home countries, and just environments where they can where they can live sustainable lives and care for their families with with some semblance of dignity and self determination. So what we're trying to do is figure out how do you create a coherent voice that recognizes that this facility is at the intersection of those two realities. And so I feel like we're, we're kind of, you know, walking blindly into this, but, I, but I'm also just sensing that a part of that means that we have to, we have to begin to put our focus on the county commissioners. And right now that's uh, in hopes of, you know, trying to create dialogue. But, but I know we have to also figure out, you know, how to offer some viable solutions, and that and that's the frightening prospect of, of how to deal with something that that isn't just unique to Stewart County, but is a is an issue that's that's much broader in our in our national landscape. Southern Labor Studies Association is a pretty diverse group of scholars and activists, um, teachers, you know, all sorts of different people, and also there's you know folks that just sort of follow along who might not belong to it, but are kind of interested in the same issues. So if you, if you look at that diverse audience, what, what occurs to you that we could do that would be helpful to sort of bring this, um, 
this vision you have to realization of shutting Stewart, but also finding economic justice for Lumpkin and Stewart County? What can we do to help? I think a part of it is to reach out to me and, be, and, and ask me questions that, you know, come to me from, from your expertise and, and ask me the questions that maybe I, that will help enlighten me as to, as to different uh, approaches and different strategies, or that maybe if there are institutions that want to do research and use this, use this location as the subject, I mean, again, I think, it's a, I think it would be a fascinating location to be doing some academic research, and maybe from that, you know, together we can kind of figure out, you know, what lies ahead. What can we learn from other communities that are similar? Can we learn from other communities that have gone post-private prisons? Because even if we're successful, and I and I sense that, you know, that that we will, you know, that I will see the day when when immigration detention is a thing of our past. I mean, it, it didn't exist in the numbers that it does now. This is a you know recent construct, and so I, I think I'll see us live past it. But you know, if they're not detaining immigrants, they may be detaining the very residents of this county. And so it'd be better to figure out how we can kind of forge an alliance together now rather than, than later. So anyone that's doing research or work around privatization of prisons, around immigration detention, around you know, rural black belt development, I mean, I would love to kind of just pick their brains and, and have them come and see what the reality is in, in, this, in this context. And what would be the best way for someone to learn more about Alterna if they wanted to contact you? Sure. There's a few different portals. Our vigil slash protest website is shutdownstuart.com. The visitation and hospitality portal would be elrefugiostuart.com. And that's E-L-R-E-F-U-G-I-O, stuart.com. And then alternas is alternacommunity.com. And I can be emailed at Anton, A-N-T-O-N, at alterna, A-L-T-E-R-N-A, community.com. Our next vigil will be Saturday, November 21st. You know, like I said, there's 1,300 people in the town. We've had 1,000 folks. We want to have more people at the vigil than, than there are residents in the town. So would welcome folks from all over. Again, we can host college groups, individuals, church groups, human rights groups, any type of group we can accommodate to do a, a service learning you know, tour, visitations uh, inside the facility. Uh, there would be mechanisms if, if groups wanted to visit the facility. Federal government you know, can, can, has guidelines for those type things. So would just welcome any kind of inquiry about, about connecting with us, both virtually but also in person. Well, thanks very much, Anton. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Dan. Sure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Working History. We spoke today with Anton Flores, co-founder of Alterna. This episode was guest hosted by Jennifer Brooks, Associate Professor of History at Auburn University. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. Mm-hmm.